0: welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On today's episode, I'm excited to welcome a guest whose work in the landscape of film distribution and production has become a crucial force in the rescuing and restoration of some of cinema's celebrated underground favorites and forgotten gems. As co-founder of the acclaimed Vinegar Syndrome, his sense of curation and care has allowed for many genre classics to be given the prestige releases they so richly deserve and has also helped create and produce a vast number of special features and documentaries celebrating their legacy. What's more, as a filmmaker himself, he's been behind such projects as Portraits of Andrea Palmer and Like a Moth to a Flame. Please welcome to the show producer, writer, director, film archivist, and cinematic renaissance man, Joe Rubin.
1: Uh, Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for coming on today. I'm excited uh, to get a chance to sit and talk to you. Uh, Especially during this odd moment in history, it's my understanding that vinegar syndrome during this briefly took a pause but you're back
1: uh not quite we were afraid that we were going to have to because a lot of the wording on the shutdowns and business closures and everything uh is vague and up for interpretation so luckily because of how we run our business we are not needing to shut down but we've scaled back in certain regards so there's fewer people in the building and so on but We're still at it. We're still shipping orders. We're still taking orders. We're still restoring films, getting everything ready. We have our Halfway to Black Friday sale coming in three weeks from today, it starts. Uh, I don't know when this podcast is going to be up, but three weeks from whatever today is, May 1st, is when it's going to be happening. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're uh, we're still going ahead business as usual, as much as we can.
0: Well, that's great to hear. And I want to dig all into the history of vinegar syndrome and everything you do. So why don't we just get started by kicking the show off with the same first question I ask every guest. And it's simply this, why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Why does horror appeal to you? Why do you think genre audiences are drawn to it? But why horror?
1: I guess I'll make it all about me. Uh, When I was uh, a really little kid, so I I guess I'll I'll expand upon this. Um, My mom... Was a librarian. She was a librarian as a summer job during college, and then she went to college for math, thought she was going to be a math professor, math teacher of some sort. I ended up never leaving the library. I pretty much literally grew up in the library, and that gave me a real appreciation for quiet and silence and solitude and just random, like walking down an aisle of books but it could be films it could be anything else and just picking something off the shelf and thinking this sounds interesting so uh when i was very young i became attracted to film and i can't really explain that specifically i mean i have theories again which involve my mom in the library but uh for reasons that i still can't quite explain uh horror movies became what i just gravitated towards like above any other type of film or television or anything that i watched I, I wanted to see horror movies and i actually still have like vivid memories of seeing little chunks of movies on network tv when i was a little kid that i have never been able to identify probably because i'm misremembering them or or my brain digesting the clips in ways that uh, i can't accurately describe what actually occurred in the films but horror movies and horror uh the the artistry that even from a really young age that i found in horror films has always stuck with me and it's it's become my first love and i think actually because of horror movies uh i fell equally in love with sex films because there's a lot of similar renegade spirit involved in the production and the distribution of both. There's a lot of taboo breaking, taking people out of their comfort zones and making things that are often considered artless or, or immoral into things that can be really profound. Uh, And as such, you know, I've kind of found myself becoming a champion for all sorts of films that, uh, most people would rather see forgotten.
0: And I, I'm really interested in in that parallel between your appreciation of smut and your appreciation of horror because that was something I was going to ask you about because I think a lot of people when they discover horror uh, at an early age, there is that sense of the forbidden. And even if you don't have necessarily an awareness of of transgressive art or subversive art, you know these are not the movies you're seeing at the multiplex, by and large, unless it's a big studio release. And there, there is a power to that. And I, you know, obviously, smut films are subversive and transgressive in their way. So there's always been that correlation for you, or did you kind of come to that a bit later?
1: Um, I, I think that, and this hopefully answers your question. Uh, so I, I, I first saw sex films. And I'll I'll distinguish here between like standard porn where you you know look at a nude magazine or a video or something like that versus a feature film that had hardcore sex in it. When I so I first saw sex films when I was probably about seven or eight years old, and the very first one that I watched was Eruption, which was a hardcore remake of Double Indemnity. and. I think that that was something that really helped my ability, a combination of my very young age and the fact that this was like a narrative feature film with a script and acting and uh, production values that felt cinematic, uh, that made me able to sort of see beyond, I think, what a lot of other people would have expected the reaction to have been. Right, you know like from, from a really young age movies as a whole uh for me were as much about the craft as they were the on-screen substance like I, I was you know, before I was aware of what camera work was and what editing was I was looking at those things and thinking about them and you know when I was like five years old I got a super 8 camera and I was starting to shoot little super 8 movies and I you know i shot one of my dad with a machete and he kills my mm-hmm. grandmother and he kills my mom and I don't remember what happened and it was sort of like a trailer parody and I even uh, I, I even took a slide projector and I cut out uh, you know the, the I, I only had a green band r-rated tag but I cut it out and I projected it and I shot the green band r rating tag so it would be an authentic trailer on super eight so you know like from a, a very young age film to me was always about the craft as much as it was the substance so i i don't think that i necessarily looked at sex films as like this is subversive this is radical i'm doing or i'm you know i'm doing something that i shouldn't and i'm like Uh, I'm I'm breaking some kind of rule. It was more that I loved the very first one that I saw proved to be cinematic, that it still had those same components as the other movies that I was watching, plus the sex, which definitely was like, oh, I'm watching something I'm not supposed to be seeing.
0: Right. So I I really like that you were invested in the craft so early? Because I think there's often a journey that that people have where, you know, they start as a fan and then there's a progression where they realize fandom's not enough. But you seem to know almost from jump, you know, if you're making Super 8 films, you know, before you're 10 years old, you you kind of knew this was something you always wanted to be involved in. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, I think so. Uh, when I was a little kid, I wanted to direct. Like that was like my goal. Like I want to make movies. I want to be uh, a filmmaker. I want to be working on productions. But from that young age, I also never wanted to be Steven Spielberg. And I, I cite him specifically because I remember at one point my dad, uh, when I was probably maybe eight or nine years old introduced me to someone and, and he said, oh, my son wants to be a director. And, and whoever this person was, I can't remember, said, you want to be like Steven Spielberg? And I said, no, I don't want to be <laughs> like Steven Spielberg. So who were the early heroes then? Um, <laughs> uh, probably probably Argento. I think at that age, like that was, I, I, I'd gotten the thorny MI VHS of Deep Red some VHS release of Suspiria and like, that was like, I want to make movies like this. These are the types of films that are just so much more spellbinding than anything I'd, I'd, I'd ever seen.
0: Well, and you know, you, you were talking about your draw to the cinematic qualities and the craft, even of that first Smut film that you saw. And you you don't get much more craftsmanship than early Argento. His curation of those films really, really is uh, very well executed. And I could see kind of the correlation between those and your draw to them because he he definitely played with sexuality and violence in a very opulent way. Absolutely. Now, with regard to the correlation between smut and horror, and I'm just going to dig into this now because you, you've existed in this space for a while. And I, I know that we've all, as horror fans, heard as a negative that, that comparison that, you know, the industry treats horror films like pornography, but is that necessarily a bad thing? And the history does seem intertwined. And what's your, your take on that?
1: One of the things that I love is, and this goes to what I'm actually doing as my life's work, passion, whatever, uh, in releasing films is releasing horror films made by people who worked in sex films either before or after or simultaneously. And it's not because those films necessarily feel like they you know, are are different than other types of horror films or horror films made by like people who didn't work in sex films, but I've always loved the overlap between the two. And I, I do think that there's a similar uh, understanding of how to make a movie that's commercially minded, but can also be subversive and weird and interesting and totally different uh, within those two types of filmmaking. I mean, the best sex films to me are not the ones that, you know, have the most sex or like the most attractive actors or uh, or uh, the, the most graphically depicted acts. They're the ones that are just good movies, like movies like uh, Through the Looking Glass uh, by Jonas Middleton, who... Co wrote uh, Just Before Dawn, directed by Jeff Lieberman, for instance. So there's so much overlap between them. And I, I don't think it's a bad thing at all to compare the two. And in many ways, it's actually beneficial in allowing people who may be fans or interested in one of them, one of those genres more than the other, to potentially become more open to exploring. The thing that they may find less appealing.
0: And I'm going to ask you because I, I honestly don't know, but it, was there at a point a cultural shift on how we sort of perceived adult cinema? Because I, I, I take someone like Tom DeSimone, for example, who horror fans know for Hell, Hell Night and his work on Reform School Girls. But Tom, uh, under various aliases including uh, Lancer Brooks, directed uh, a number of, of gay adult cinema before, and during that time that he was making these these horror movies. And in a conversation I had with him when I interviewed him for Ultraviolent Magazine uh, back in the day, was for him it was an opportunity to continually expand his craft as a filmmaker and to learn cinematic tricks that he could utilized in different mediums. And it didn't matter what kind of film he was making. It was important that he was making films. And we see a lot of filmmakers in genre, like Wes Craven, for example, uh, having worked in adult cinema in that era of the late 60s, early 70s. But did the Reagan era change the perspective? Because now it seems like if you work in porn, it's much harder to, to break into mainstream.
1: I think that that era definitely had a huge impact on every aspect of film. And this goes beyond horror, sex films. It, it, it impacted everything because it was the era of cable TV. I mean, forget about the politics. It was the era of cable TV. It was the era of video. Uh, it was the era of the like the real takeover of the blockbuster. You know, It started in the late 70s, but it really came into full force in the 80s. And it was also the era of family films becoming something that existed outside of Disney. Like, every studio wanted to appeal to that family audience contingent. I mean, you can see, and this is a tangent, but you can see, like, porn people making family films occasionally. Like, uh, the the guy who would go on to direct Who's Nailin Palin uh, (laughs) in, in the 80s made a kiddie film called A Night of the Magic Castle. And this is, again, this is after he had been directing and distributing porn for maybe 10 years, and he would continue doing so for another 20. So there's a lot of, there were so many changes going on in the 1980s, and I I think that the biggest impact and the reason that it really became uh, a lot harder to, at least even as a crew person, crossover between sex films and non-sex non-sex oriented films uh was because of the marketing the distribution. You know, when you were making a 35 millimeter feature, everyone on those crews was doing a lot of things. They would be working on a Hollywood film one week and they'd be working on an industrial film or a commercial another week and they'd be working on a sex film another week. So there was like a, a much greater internal tolerance of like, oh, you worked on these sex films and then you went and worked for Fox and then you went off and, you know, shot some industrial thing, you know. So internally, there was a lot more acceptance. And I I think also from a public and a a viewership uh, perspective, the fact that, these movies were being played in theaters and they had newspaper ads and they were given press screenings and they were reviewed in variety in the local newspaper and you know they were talked about on TV, even if they were talked about it in in negative or, or moralizing ways. It was easier to say this director made these dirty movies and now they do these other types of movies, or this actor has you know, like that, like that sort of dark secret that everyone knows about, but no one cares about. I mean, in the, in the most famous example, granted it wasn't hardcore, is still Sylvester Stallone, who right. appeared in The Party of Kitty and Studs. And uh, that film basically forgotten about until Harry Moni, who was a big producer at the time and a theater owner, bought the rights and retitled it Post-Rocky Italian Stallion and really marketed the fact that this is Sylvester's this is Sylvester Stallone and his first role, and it's a sex film. And granted, it was softcore, but uh, no one cared. Yeah, in, in in the same way that like someone like Marilyn Chambers could also appear in numerous hardcore films. And then her appearance in Rabid became not something that was scandalous, but something that was exciting and titillating to sort of see the the actor associated with sex films doing this straight role
0: and yet i feel in some ways it was more acceptable than than now you don't see as much crossover and i'm wondering if the the advent of the internet aids to that because the internet era has this instant access to everything whereas you would make a movie then and the next week there was distance because all the information wasn't available to us all the time
1: I think that would certainly be a component, but I mean, I, I truly feel like the biggest problem that, or the, the biggest cultural change, technological change that really impacted this was the shift to video. You know, you, you actually, like, you can go way before the internet, you stop really seeing crossover uh, in actors in the 90s. And that also coincides with the emergence of the contemporary porn studio era of Mm -hmm. uh, contract girls and all of that stuff. You know, I'm not necessarily the one to most accurately speak to the trends in modern porn consumption and how the public perceives contemporary porn actors as opposed to or, or compared to previous decades, I would defer to someone like Laura Marks or Witt uh, who are two of my favorite academics on the subject, who would probably have a lot more specified insight there. But you know, my my take really has always been that it was the video era and the de- and and the ceasing of the desire of a lot of these actors as well as directors to create. The crossover market you know, like we, we met because of your chuck vincent facebook page i think that, that's right? right that's how we yeah. connected yeah and you know no one better epitomizes the crossover ideal than chuck vincent who would literally go back and forth between or throughout his entire career between directing hardcore movies and uh, r-rated drive-in movies and then later on direct-to-video and direct-to-cable Uh, sort of mainstream movies, and he always made a point to cast porn actors, sex film actors, in really heavy acting roles in his films. And it wasn't... I don't think it was because... And this is paraphrasing some of those actors themselves, uh, because he felt sorry for them or those are the only ones he had available to them is because he actually liked them and he thought they had talent.
0: And Chuck Vinson is one of those filmmakers, too, who had such a wide body of work that used to play on Late Night Cable. And I, I, I still... I wish that he got his cult cinema due. I think that there's a whole audience out there that is, if they're raring to discover someone, he's a really good one to do so.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I, I, I've loved his films as long as I've been aware of them. And I, I can think of very few directors who worked in the realm of exploitation, who worked in as many genres and, and made as many types of films as he did. I mean, I I, I can always cite the incredible trajectory of making a movie like Roommates, uh, which is this wonderful sort of tribute to uh, pre-code women's pictures. Uh, And then his last film, according to his regular DP, Larry Ravine, was uh, Deranged, which is, I think, a really exceptional remake reimagining of polanski's repulsion
0: and he did so much in between too uh, from women in prison films to slapstick comedies and and uh it it just truly a, a, a renaissance filmmaker and um i curated that page uh that you know connected us because i remembered so many of his movies from usa up all night and then as we know those films were very edited for tv but i liked what i saw enough to keep investigating and uh, that's when I found some of the other ones on VHS. And, and unfortunately, many of, the, many of them still exist only on VHS and have not yet found, found a new life, and hopefully someday.
1: Yeah, I, I've, uh, I, I've long searched for them. And unfortunately, the problem with them, it seems, is the uh, materials are missing for a lot. Others are owned by people who just don't care about doing anything with them so it's it's uh because 80s r-rated movies are kind of a black hole for the time being A shame
0: well bringing it back to uh you and your work you had said that your early aspirations were to be as a filmmaker and director and uh you did you 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 have directed films you have worked uh within uh, a, a few different genres including x-rated pictures But tell me a little bit about that trajectory of you making films and transitioning to the world of archive work and distribution.
1: Sure. Uh, So I'm from Chicago. And when I was 16, I started working at a video store that was then maybe eight months, seven months uh, opened or had it been open for about eight or seven months. Uh, And... That store, which actually just closed a few days ago, uh, permanently, uh, out of session movies, uh, was really a, a door opener for me on every level. It was a great way to just randomly meet people. And it was a great way to explore film, uh, to make connections, to have an excuse to talk to people who I wouldn't have otherwise had a reason or, a even in some cases, a desire to communicate with, uh. And you know, at that point, I was still really invested in the idea of I want to make films, and be a filmmaker in the very uh, traditional sense. But since I was a little kid, I had also been collecting film, which goes back to my mom being a librarian when uh, the library was discarding their sixteen millimeter holdings and their eight millimeter holdings. I insisted on trying to get as many of them as possible. I would buy films on forums. I would buy films from. Some listeners may remember the Big Reel magazine uh, and then other websites that were film-trading-oriented. And so film collecting had been a part of my life since I was also like a really little kid. And I, I had always been in love with film in the tactile form. I, I loved touching it, holding it, cutting it, editing it, loading it into the camera. Uh, it, the, the physical material, the medium itself, Uh, mattered a lot to me. So all of these things sort of came to a head because of odd obsession in in some ways. And uh, I was becoming more and more interested in the concept of film preservation and like becoming aware of the importance of maintaining the physical materials. And of course, this was still... 15 years ago, where there were companies that were handling cult films, exploitation films uh, on home video, like uh, Media Blasters and Anchor Bay. And this was the beginning of uh, uh, Blue Underground. And uh, I mean, this was a few years later, but Severn Films eventually uh, started up in Grindhouse releasing. So, you know, a lot of companies that are still luckily around today and are still doing amazing work were also sort of inspirational to me in making me appreciate the importance of not just being able to see movies but see them in ways that reflected the way that their directors wanted them to be seen you know right. in correct aspect ratios in, in versions that reflected their original cuts and so on so Film restoration wasn't something that I was thinking about as a profession at the time, but I kind of fell into it later on as a result of uh, collecting when I started to be uh, asked to supply materials that I didn't necessarily know were rare to help do restorations. And that kind of snowballed into uh, some of the people that I was working with on some early projects like that inviting me to become more involved in the not just the technical but the business side of things
0: and this all stems from just collecting early on and you started to amass quite a a personal collection I read according to IMDB that you uh allegedly have one of the largest collections of, of smart films in the world is that true
1: it's probably true I mean <laughs> I, I, I think that uh, the Vinegar syndrome holdings uh, for American theatrical hardcore features, and I, I love that phrase because I think it's it's perfectly articulates what I work on uh, so American theatrical hardcore features, we probably have film materials on. Two thousand.
0: Well, and and talk to me a little bit about that process because you weren't getting those films from the library when it was closing. When when did you switch over to looking for hardcore and smut films? And are those trickier to track down just due to the nature of the films that they are?
1: I've been asked that question a lot, and it's a really difficult question to answer because every single acquisition happens in a totally different set of circumstances like i've been notified of like one one of the best acquisitions we ever made was through ebay really some guy just posted a gigantic stash of negatives on ebay uh and i mean I, i i can't tell you how many lost films we've gotten out of that
0: so there's but, lots of hidden gems to be found if you are just looking for them
1: yeah and and others so I, I guess to speak in the most general of terms the giant collections have often fallen into my lap it's the I'm gonna go out and try to find this one specific movie that tend to be the most difficult and the uh, the least uh successful
0: well and i'm sure i mean you hear stories all the time of of negatives popping up in the most unlikely of places a bbc series where someone had the negatives in a attic in Hong kong or i know filmmakers that we both uh, are acquainted with like david dakota has told me that he has movies of his that are somewhere in asia and i asked him well how did how that happen he's like i don't know so i can see that you know it, individual films must sometimes be quite an adventure.
1: Yeah. And again, unfortunately, it's very often a losing battle. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll give uh, one anecdote. Uh, one of my uh, favorite releases of uh, Vinegar Syndrome releases of 2018, a movie called Shot, which was this incredible, no budget, made by film students, sort of French connection takeoff, shot uh, at the University of Illinois in 1972. The director had never made another film that I know of, and he had the negative sitting in his closet. And like those situations are wonderful. When you contact someone they're like, Oh yeah, I have this. It's all here. No problem. More often than not, when we find the rights to something, the owner has no idea where the materials are, or equally frustrating, we find the material and we have no idea where to look for the rights.
0: So it, it's every every film is is a process, and uh, that's you know I commend you on the work because that's that's important. You're out there preserving things that you know some people probably don't even know where to begin, and, and you're putting the hard work in to save it for everyone. Uh, so let's, let's talk about that because we, we talked about how your personal collection led to you starting to be contacted to do work on, uh, some of, some of these, these projects in an archival way. But when did you decide from being asked to invest in your own label? When did, when did vinegar syndrome become vinegar syndrome?
1: That came to be because of a failed venture. So going back to like how I sort of found myself in the, in the world of film restoration, it was, I think, 2008 or nine. So in the grand scheme of things, not that long ago, uh, where I was first being uh, asked to supply film elements for scans and, and, and to be used in preservations. uh, And, some of the people that I was working with had want had basically they, they liked what I was doing and they liked the people who I was working with and one of those people was uh Ryan Emerson who became my business partner in vinegar syndrome uh we didn't know each other at all before we were literally assigned to each other at mm-hmm. a lab in Chicago so there was a title that we were that, that I had supplied material on the condition was I'll let you use this material but I want to supervise the restoration so it had to be done in Chicago because that's where I was living at the time and uh, the only lab in town basically that was still doing this stuff uh, was the one that we were using and I had done processing and printing of, of my own films there so I sort of knew the facility so I was fine with that and I go in and I'm introduced to Ryan, who was going to be the colorist on the job. And after we had finished this particular title, he sent me an email saying, hey, I like these sorts of movies. This was an exploitation film, not a sex film. Uh, do you have any more that you're wanting to work on? Because I'm trying to beef up my reel as a colorist, basically. So I called up all the people who I'd worked with in some capacity who I knew owned the rights to films, had films, wanted to get their movies restored and said, if you want a great deal, I'm I'm your, I'm your man. And I got a surprisingly positive response. And this network of people, a, a couple of them ended up basically making a proposal to us a couple of years later, why don't you go into business with us and we'll set up a restoration lab in Connecticut because that's where they had recently purchased a building. So we moved out to Connecticut and we set up shop and it basically failed. But in the midst of this, uh, Ryan came up with the idea of why don't we You know, you basically. So when when I moved to Connecticut, to sort of backtrack a little bit here, I wasn't going to leave all my films in Chicago. So this resulted in pallets and pallets of film showing up to this giant building in Connecticut where we were working out of. And Ryan's like looking at all this stuff and he's like, "What are you going to do with this? You know, a lot of filmmakers, you know, a lot of distributors. You have all this film. Like, what's your plan? Like, is it just going to sit here and?" So I'm like, oh, I don't really know what we're going to do with it. So he more or less said, well, we have the means to do releases. We have the equipment to do restorations. Why don't we establish a film or a, a film distribution entity that you know we can take some of your connections and, and the films that we've already worked on uh, for other clients uh, and distribute them and this would be a great way to bring these films back out into the market and also the the sort of secondary hope was it would draw attention back to the lab the idea being if we're putting out uh releases if we create like a, a branding that is uh really pushing the fact that we are a lab and we are also a releasing entity uh, we're gonna maybe get some more business for the lab. Well, that didn't work. So, <laughs> lab the lab closed. Uh, the releasing entity continued. Uh, eventually, we decided. You know, we still have the equipment. We should sort of revamp and restart the lab, but make that the secondary uh focus and make the distribution entity the primary focus which is how it's been so we still do lab work like we still work with plenty of companies like arrow and kino and severin and uh, grindhouse I mean, a lot of the companies that i've mentioned before
0: and uh from that first iteration to now was it always called vinegar syndrome or did it have a different title
1: uh no but it was always called vinegar syndrome so vinegar syndrome was always the home video entity that was a name that Ryan, so before we even moved out to Connecticut, Ryan had wanted to start a, uh, he, he'd, he'd bought the domain VinegarSyndrome.com because he wanted to uh, do a website about film preservation. So when he brought up the concept of doing a home video entity, we were talking about like, you know, how, what should we call it? Like, how should we distinguish it? from the lab, because It wasn't the same legal entity. It was still a separate thing. Uh, so he said, well, I have vinegar syndrome as a domain and that's a catchy name. And we've, you know, it sort of speaks to like what we're doing. Why don't we call it vinegar syndrome?
0: And for listeners who don't know, I'm pretty sure that anybody who follows vinegar syndrome as a label should know this, but for, for listeners who don't know, vinegar syndrome is in reference to the smell that, uh, that film takes on as it ages, correct?
1: As the chemicals break down. So the, the scent is because film, most of the film that we're dealing with is acetate-diacetate. So it's an acid base. And it, as the chemical compounds break down, the Uh, it it off gases. So the off gassing has, because of the high acidity, a vinegar like scent. It doesn't actually smell like, you know, if you open a bottle of vinegar, it doesn't quite smell like that, but it has a similar pungent acidity. And uh, the more salad dressing like it goes, the worse it is. (laughs)
0: <laughs> that's uh that's a uh, the salad litmus that the, the learning curve here um so and, and one of the the things you know we've been talking about uh smut and adult cinema it, it, throughout this conversation and when you launched vinegar syndrome as a distri- distribution label it began as an x-rated label uh and i know from early interviews with you that it was it was Kind of a challenge in just in, in in making the distinction to people who were not maybe as hip to the phraseology that x rated does not equal porn was that a, a a hill that you had to frequently you know climb
1: it's a it's a mountain that I still climb uh, I, I i I hate the word porn even though I've used it a bunch already in this interview right. uh, because i I think it speaks too much to intent it speaks too heavily to people's preconceptions like when you say the word porn or i say the word porn or where anyone else says the word porn even if there's a certain amount of overlap in how we all might understand it there's so many other uh socialized culturally uh ingrained expectations about what it means on a creative level on a moral level on an ethical level on an artistic level uh, and as such, I think it, using that word as a blanket term can often push people towards a certain expectation, literally in terms of content, as well as, and I think this is even more important, intent. And, and I, I've, I've coined this phrase that I used to use a lot more than I do now, but the erotic assumption. Basically, the, the notion that if something is sexually explicit or pornographic, it was created solely or primarily with the intention of titillation. And having watched probably more American theatrical hardcore features than most people alive, whether they were watching them at the time or not, uh, I, I can very safely say that there is absolutely nothing consistent about how explicit sex is used in these movies. Sure, sometimes, maybe even most of the time, it's being utilized to arouse the viewer. But in many, many other instances, it's also being used for different purposes. And it's not like, you know, arousal is bad and different things are good. It's that if you go into a movie, a sex film, or a sexually explicit film, with this preconception that, the sex is there because it's there to turn you on or it was put in there because it's you're supposed to be turned on when you watch it, you can really be blinded to a lot of other aspects of the film, including how the sex itself is really being used.
0: And you, you refer to this as, as the mountain that you continually have to climb. And I had read an interview where you were talking about a, a vinegar syndrome partnership with Drafthouse. And in that interview, you talked about how some of the films in your catalog Cannot be screened at theaters like the Draft House because of the X rating, and that's got to be vexing. Because speaking to this issue, they're just looking at that letter and 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 heaping the stigma upon it, rather than maybe evaluating the cinematic merit of the film.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I I just want to be clear on that. Like we work with uh, Draft House a lot. We love working with them. Agfa handles our sure, future sure, yeah. distributions, So. It's not that you know Agfa or Draft House has a moral objection. Uh, in, in fact, the reason that they're not able to screen uh, hardcore or movies with hardcore sex has nothing to do with them. It has to do with liquor licensing. So, a lot of American states have laws that are basically or were primarily designed to apply to strip clubs where you can't have full nudity or explicit sex in a venue that serves alcohol and because of the draft house model where you can get drinks while you're watching the movie they are legally prohibited from screening a lot of types of sexually explicit work and it's not because their programmers are opposed to it it's not because they as an institution are opposed to it, it's because they legally cannot, like they would be fined or potentially certain venues could be shut down if they did so. Well, and having
0: hosted events for draft house myself, I I myself want to clarify that I, I know they're super hip to the cause, but I assumed there was some sort of larger machination from whether it be legal or whatever that was preventing that. But because those things happen, it, it creates this stigma in in culture that we don't even necessarily always realize that's the reason why, because that, it permeates, you know, just the way we think of these films. And I think that's unjust.
1: Definitely. And I, I, I always like to uh, point to some of the great experiences that I've had uh, watching these films in theaters. I mean, the best such series that I can think of was the, in the flesh series that was, hosted an anthology film archives and curated by Casey Scott. Um, This had, I think, three or four uh, mini programs of four nights each, where a different film will be screened each night. Every single screening had special guests, whether it was the director, actors, producers, cinematographers, whatever. Uh, And and it was really great to be able to uh, see these movies, and they were all film screenings as well, no digital in a proper theatrical environment, in their original exhibition format, with an audience that was, for the most part, going into them because they wanted to watch them, not just gawk at the spectacle or laugh at the idea of silly vintage porn.
0: Right, so in discussing how Vinegar Syndrome began as an X-rated label and sort of the the challenges that that presented in terms of, of getting the idea of these films that you represented out, you have since expanded to encompass all kinds of films. So talk to me a little bit about that expansion and uh, why why that decision was made and what ultimately at the end of the day, the day when you're picking films makes a Vinegar Syndrome film.
1: So all of that is a, a, a constant evolution. Um, I, I don't know that we actually have expanded in the same way that i think a lot of people might think we have even those who have been like watching our releases and and picking up our titles since the beginning you know keep in mind that uh catalog number number or catalog number three was massage parlor murders which is a a proto slasher you know it's so we've been we've never been stuck in any specific genre or category, and that was always kind of the idea. Uh, philosophically, and, and I, can, I, I can definitely speak for Ryan, Ralph, and Ian, and have, I have three partners in Vinegar Syndrome, and that we all feel that the whole idea, the whole ideology of the company is to say all genre film is equal. There isn't a single genre or, or or category that is inherently better than others. It's not like horror movies are better, or sex films are better, or action films are better, or big budget movies or low budget movies. You know, they all deserve to be seen. They all deserve to be appreciated. They all deserve to be preserved. Uh, and and that's kind of been the ideology of vinegar syndrome from the start uh the the sex film aspect was more a matter of convenience than preference but if you look at the first year of releases especially even the first six months it was a lot more focused on previously unavailable films like there was a lot of you know this movie has never been on disc there was uh or a number of lost films that we were putting out. And that was something that we were really trying to maintain, but there's only a certain number of lost films that can easily be found. So right. we sort of hit a, a brick wall with that concept pretty easily or early. Uh, but we we still try to include a mix of movies that are better known or might have larger existing audiences alongside films like the one that I mentioned earlier, Shots, which had had a, a, a tiny VHS release and basically was completely forgotten about. And you know, a, a friend in, in Sweden recommended it to me as the best student film ever made. And I just loved it. It was like, this movie is not going to make any money, but <laughs> it's a, it's a film that is just so different than anything else I've seen. I want it to be out. I want it to be part of this Catalog. So, I mean, I, I think that that also sort of speaks to how we curate uh, our, our releases as well. Like, we want someone who isn't necessarily a devotee of genre films to be able to look at our catalog and say, oh, I recognize this, but I don't recognize these, but I know I like this, so maybe I'll try these. And I I think the best recent example of that is Rad, which we just put out, or we just put up a pre-order like three weeks ago and it will be in stock during the halfway sale in three weeks. Uh, And Rad is a movie that uh, we've gotten some criticism as going too mainstream. Like, why did we put a a movie that is so well-known and so well-liked and like so out there in terms of, general public, uh, uh, knowledge, you know, as, as if like doing a movie that's, uh, enjoyed or, 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 uh, demanded by a type of audience that isn't necessarily interested in genre films at all is a step away from our mission. And I get that because yeah, it's, definitely different than pretty much all the other films that we've put out but it's also resulted in a bunch of new people discovering our catalog and the hope is you know if if you if you liked rad for whatever reason you, you liked rad but you're going on our site and you're going to look at rad and you're going to buy rad hopefully you'll spend a few minutes going through the site and maybe you'll discover something that you didn't even know existed but be intrigued enough to pick up
0: well and i think that intrigue and discovery have been a major theme of this conversation and and uh something that's been a through line of your work the idea of, be, of discovering the the craft and and you know art behind cinema that drew you towards it the idea of, of rediscovering movies that were thought lost hoping to draw audiences to this world and help have them discover something new. And in that process, I'm sure you're learning new things about the films and filmmakers and, and film in, in general all the time. Is there anything particular? And I know this is a big question during your time at vinegar syndrome that you've discovered or like a, you know, a bon mot from a, a particular film that you particularly treasure.
1: I, I think one of the greatest, Privileges in running Vinegar Syndrome is that it's given me an opportunity, you know, much in the same way that when I managed the video store, I, I basically had an excuse to talk to a lot of people that I would have felt awkward talking to otherwise because I didn't really have a reason. Right. It's done the same thing here. Like I've been able to uh, meet so many people whose work I've loved and be able to ask them things that i would never have had an excuse to ask them otherwise i mean like uh last year we put out the vineyard which is a fun late 80s uh, james hong co-directed monster-ish movie and the dp on that film i loved his work for years he did a lot of x-rated films under a different name and he shot one of what i think is the most beautiful sex films I've ever seen. Like every single sequence in the movie is so gorgeously lit and framed and just his use of color and his and the camera movement that he employs. All of it was, I, I've watched that film maybe a dozen times and then sections of it many times more just because I think the camera work is so exquisite. And after I did, or after he did his interview for uh, The Vineyard, uh, I wasn't sure if he'd be comfortable talking about his other work. So I kind of eased into the question, and I think I was able to name drop and say, I know these people who you worked with to make him more comfortable. And then I brought up this film because I loved it so much. And it turned out that he was just overjoyed that someone, knew this film remembered it and remembered it for his cinematography and and he you know told me like one of the most beautiful shots is these two women riding up a hill backlit with a sunset so all we see are their silhouettes going up this hill with this gorgeous you know uh, red orange purple uh, every color you can want in the sunset uh, backlighting them and he was really excited to tell me how he got that shot. And it turned out that it wasn't even the actors that are supposed to be on the horses. They were just two random people He knew the scene. And he, he knew that there was a scene of the film that required these actors to ride up a hill on horseback. And he was just scouting locations with his, with his AC. And he spotted these two women who happened to be riding on horses. And he said, can you go up that hill? And he shot them. And it was magic hour. So it's it, it's moments like that that really uh, inspire me. And another example, I was interviewing a uh, a DP who I asked how he got like these amber hues in skin tones, and he told me his lighting or not even his lighting trick his his film stock trick. And so this is right before I was about to shoot my first 16 millimeter feature. And so I used his trick and I don't think I did it nearly as well as he did, but, you know, I used his trick. And so it's stuff like that.
0: Well, and you you mentioned your work as a filmmaker and we've brought it up a few times over the course of this discussion, but I know that you're still working uh, in, in that space as well. And what draws you to a project as a filmmaker. You know, you spend all this time working on the films of others, but at what point do you sit down and you're like, okay, now now I'm going to do this one for me?
1: I don't know. So I think this goes back to my mental shift from when did I realize that I was not going to be a director and I was going to be an archivist, but I still like... Working around movies, and I still like, you know, playing with cameras and and telling people what to do, basically. So, I, I still wanted to do those things, even though I kind of resigned myself to the fact that like this was not going to be my my life. And ultimately, I'm happy because of that. I don't think I'd be able to deal with the stress of making a living at making movies. So instead, I can be a, a very happy filmmaker hobbyist. Uh, but uh, yeah the the features that I've done and I've how many have I done five maybe I think Uh, all of them have been again collaborative Uh, there's one that I basically did entirely on my own Not entirely on my own, but I I was wearing more hats than I'd worn in any other situation. And I think it's telling that that one is the one that is not available at all. Although a trailer exists on the internet and it's basically done, but it's uh, not quite. And I I like it. Like, you know, my my, my friend is uh, editing it. This is something that I shot in 2011, but, uh, you know, still being edited on the. whenever he has a a free couple hours and uh, trying to make something better out of it. I'm, I'm not, I don't think it's like a disaster or anything, but it was, it was the one time where I didn't really have a partner. I didn't have someone who I could in every situation bounce an idea off of, or they bounce an idea off of me. And perhaps because of that, it, it wasn't a, project that I felt as invested in when I was done shooting it I sort of let it sit in its cans and it's still that way but all the other ones are are the result of more often than not me being inspired by who I'm working with in the instance or some other person saying hey do you want to make uh, this movie with me
0: Well, and it's interesting because a lot of what you've spoken to about uh, what's excited you about the work with Vinegar Syndrome is that getting to really look at the craft and mine into the creative process of the different artists whose work that you're helping preserve. So I'm wondering if that also crosses over to your work as a filmmaker, because you seem to really enjoy those collaborations, because maybe it feeds you in the same way On that side of the fence too that that creative energy and seeing how different artists approach things
1: absolutely i mean i'm not under any illusion that i'm a uh a great director or a great cinematographer or a great anything i enjoy uh doing a lot of those craft and uh artistic oriented tasks but i also love being able to say, OK, you do this now, and sort of washing my hands of some aspect of it. Like Portraits, for instance, which you mentioned earlier, uh, which uh, was a real like, 50-50 collaboration between myself and Louis, uh, Justin, who runs master Video. Uh, that was a, a nice experience because we were together every single step of the way like we were all there was never a day where it was like okay you're gonna direct this and then i'm gonna direct this like we were together and we were each bringing up our ideas and i think it was maybe a bit scattered at times because we would simultaneously be like saying different things to the actors not (laughs) often but that happened a few times uh but it it was great because you know I, I felt in Lewis that uh, Lewis and I we didn't always see eye to eye on everything, and we had you know we would have different opinions and we'd have disagreements on ways that certain scenes could play out or should play out. But I think that there was a lot of listening. Like if he brought something up, I would listen. If I brought something up, he would listen. And I think that we also brought our unique perspectives, which again, didn't always align. Like we weren't, uh, we, we we weren't collaborating in the sense of we are one voice making one thing with one idea. Like, I think that some of the, the, the points or the, the, uh, the visuals that you see in the film are 100% Lewis. And others are 100% me, but nothing in it was like, okay, this is your day. And this is my day. Like we were always with it together. And I think that that is something that I love when I've had a good experience making a film uh, where there's not as much a sense of absolute unity, but a sense of like, we each respect each other and acknowledge that we don't necessarily have the exact same uh, desires, but because of that, there's more thought and debate and discussion, and hopefully it results in a better final product, but you know, you never know what it would be under different circumstances.
0: True, and and something that I, I really like is is just how reverent you are to the process, and you seem always open to learning uh, and and expanding your horizons as an artist, and as well as what you do with Vinegar Syndrome, you are always intaking and learning from the films that you distribute. And uh, because of that, and you know, taking it all the way back to the beginning, the the mainstream perception that a lot of these movies are transgressive or subversive or whatever word we want to use, uh, I I love the fact that you also have done guest lectures uh, on on these topics and and. Did you ever think when you were starting out in in the films that you were and and the movies that you watched that you would be doing uh, collegiate talks on these subjects? What's that like?
1: Yeah, I've I've been fortunate, I suppose, that people look at what I'm doing and think I'm someone who they should invite to share my ideas or philosophies or knowledge. I mean, I've appeared at, film screenings of movies that I've worked on restorations of. And I, I've, I think I've only done like a college lecture once. Uh, that was actually pre-Vinegar Syndrome. But uh, I, I've been on numerous panels and such. And I think that's always fun. I, I hate the, the writing part of it. I was never much for schoolwork. But it's uh, <laughs> one of the necessary evils in certain contexts. But uh yeah, I, I, I love being involved in things like that because again it's it's often a form of collaboration. Like it's rarely just me standing up giving a speech at the end. It's it's always or has at least in the situations that I've been that I've uh done, it's been my being part of a panel. Like I was on uh, a uh, panel at the Society of Cinema and Media Studies uh last year. With some scholars whose work I I really love, and who I learned a lot of different uh, perspectives and and anecdotes and history and knowledge from as well. And being in a group where you know I'm not just thinking about like I'm going to give my speech and then I'm done, but like I'm going to hear these fascinating people talking about things that I don't know about and I'm going to learn something from them. That's really much more exciting.
0: Well, and it goes back to the, the concept that film is a collaborative effort, but it's also a good reminder that this collective worship and appreciation and love of cinema is is also a community as well. It's a collaboration to make one, but it's also a, a collaboration to preserve the history and, and celebrate these films. And uh, the work that you do just continues to speak to that. And I, I know that so many people are grateful for for both you and Vinegar Syndrome for that reason. Uh, and as we wrap up, I just, you know, uh, I, I really wanted to say how uh, important I think it is and, and, and to thank you for that place that you occupy in, in our community. Um, before we go, though, you and I had talked about something right before we went on air that because of the nature of the show, I wanted to briefly discuss. And uh, we had talked about how sort of uh, there was a trajectory of, of gay adult cinema that has been lost to time and we don't have a lot of documents on it. And you had, had told me that's actually not true, but with a caveat. Could you could you speak to that a little bit?
1: Sure. So, uh, you know, all, all male films, which is my, my preferred term for them, and I can get into the, the historical reasoning for that if you want, but uh, it, that's never really been something that I've focused nearly as much attention on as hetero films. And I think that has mostly to do with the fact that objectively, cinematically, there's a lot more good hetero films than all male films. Uh, but uh, I've recently, in the past maybe five years, become really fascinated with the history of uh, all-male films because uh, of kind of what you said, like there's so less information about it, the people who made them, the actors, the distribution history. And yeah, a, a lot of that loss is literally because the, more people who made all male films are dead now than people who made hetero films and they died earlier so you know a lot of the key directors of hetero films died in between 2000 and like 2012 so in this century a lot of the key directors of all male films if they were known uh I shouldn't even say a lot but like a good enough number of them died before the year 2000. And a lot of other ones were far less uh, public with their actual identities. So they might still be alive, but there's been no way to positively connect their work to their actual name. So there's still many, many films that, exist and might have fascinating stories behind them because the films themselves are interesting but we don't know who directed them uh but yeah just to speak to the sort of forgotten history aspect uh the all-male film market uh was actually really good at documenting its history in a number of avenues so like in in the 70s and i'm strictly talking about u.s stuff here Uh, there were quite a number of magazines that were basically bar rags or sold or given away as bar rags that just because of the nature of the bar rag appeal of like you know you're going out to a bar you're probably going to get drunk and want to have sex with someone there was a lot of sort of gossipy information about all-male sex films and some actors, some directors, so there's a a pretty good wealth of information to be pulled from uh, magazines, even ones that still exist today, like The Advocate, which in its earliest incarnation was basically a sex magazine, and now it's, uh, I guess, like a very sort of high-class cultural issues. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong on that, but that's what it seemed when when I've happened upon an article from it here and there. Uh, But back in the early 70s, it was like uh, sex film reviews and then uh, gossip about sex-related subject matter in L.A., and there was loads of stuff about the sex film market. Uh, and then in the 90s, uh, Jerry Douglas, who was, even actually in the 80s, because there were a couple magazines that he did this for, uh, but Jerry Douglas, who was a playwright and later a filmmaker who is probably best remembered for writing the play and then screenplay for uh, what became Metzger's Score uh, with Lynn Lowry, uh, he sort of took it upon himself to become the chronicler of all-male sex films. And he started doing really invaluable career and life expansive interviews with plenty of actors and directors and uh, even crew people. And in many cases, his interviews are the only journalistic records of these people's work. And again, a lot of them are dead. Uh, And a lot of them never spoke to anyone else because no one thought to ask them.
0: Well, and you, you spoke earlier about kind of the disparate quality when you were first sort of investigating these films, but also the, the anonymity of some of the directors who might still be alive that we don't know are out there is that also due to the fact that a lot of these films were, not legal to be made for a much longer time than heterosexual adult films?
1: No, there was nothing. There there was no legal uh, distinction made between the type of sex act depicted. Uh, In L.A., all of it was illegal until 1988. In L.A. County, you couldn't shoot it. You could not shoot hardcore sex uh, until 1988. And then the Freeman decision... Uh, named after Hal Freeman, who was a director, was uh, handed down. And it basically what it, it did, and I, and I can editorialize here, and you can cut it out if you think it's irrelevant, but uh, prior to 1988, uh, shooting sex films or shooting explicit sex in L.A. County uh, was considered pimping and pandering. So directors, producers, cinematographers, crew members, were arrested and prosecuted as pimps and actors were prosecuted as prostitutes so the freeman decision basically and this is a going to be a very dumbed down uh explanation of it but hal freeman made a movie called caught from behind which is not very good Uh, he also (laughs) made a uh not very good but very popular horror movie called uh, Blood Frenzy. Uh, at right after, or actually no, right before the Freeman decision occurred, but he he was busted, and he, you know, for the most part, people would get busted and nothing would actually happen. They would they would get fined and go back about their business, but he protested and he said, "This is absurd. Why am I being busted for making a movie?" You know, this is, this is filmmaking. So he actually took it to court and said, these movies that I am making are films. They're no different than any other type of film. The actors that are in them are actors. They are not being paid by me to have sex. They are being paid by me to portray characters. The characters that they are portraying as part of the storyline have sex. And there's nothing illegal about people having sex So therefore, why should it be illegal for an actor in character to have sex with another actor in character? And the argument was heard, and it was decided that, yes, this was true. There was a fundamental difference between a person who is being paid or paying To have sex with another person where the money is being transacted specifically for the sake of sexual interaction, as opposed to a person who is being portrayed or is being paid to portray a character in a scripted film, and as part of their character, they have sex. So it's a slippery slope, somewhat nuanced distinction, but one of the things that I found really interesting in the past decade or so is the unwitting undoing of that in terms of popular vernacular and the popularization of uh, the the term sex worker as an all-encompassing term to describe people who engage in prostitution, sexual surrogacy, uh, domination, as well as people who appear in sex movies and it's it's really been interesting to see how the same arguments that were used to actually legalize hardcore sex in movies being shot in LA County is now being unused or undone to say actually there is no distinction so it, it, it's 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 interesting to look at that on a on a both a legal and a, a sort of cultural perception level. Because the, the argument made today with uh, sex workers is, well, why should any of it be illegal? When, and, I, and I'm in support of that. Like there's, it's it's right. absurd to say that uh, if, if someone is consensually engaging in a sexual service, doesn't matter what that service is, and no one's you know, getting hurt and it's all consensual, why should there be legislation telling this person that they are not allowed to do so and they can just go into jail for sex? I mean, it's, it's, it's absurd. But all the same, it, it's interesting to look at this conversation and how terminology and like so sort of going back to what I was saying about pornography, the, the way that people come at the... Subject is going to be so entrenched in how they view other, maybe related, maybe unrelated subjects, that it can cloud a well intentioned discussion into inadvertently making a whole bunch of other unrelated uh, statements or, or ideas. But yeah, go, going back to whatever you're asking before, I think it was about uh, the legality of it. Uh, I, or or why these films were not as well known or or the people who made them weren't as well known. I I think that a lot of it was also to do, if there was any legal or moral or social aspect, it was more to do with the homosexuality aspect. Like the people making an all-male movie may not have been as ready to say, hey, I directed this as someone right. making a hetero film. And y- you see that in some of the people who are known today to have made these films. Uh, they never discussed them. They never... Uh, they, they never... I mean, someone like Tom DeSimone is a, is a is a great exception to this. But a lot of them would never have openly... Ad- acknowledged the intersection of their potential Hollywood careers and all-male careers. Well, did, did you know uh, Terry Legrand, by the way? Uh, yeah, he, he, he was a producer. He died, I think a year and a half, two years ago, but uh, yeah, if, if, if you'd known him, this would probably make more sense, but he was someone who uh, worked with a lot of people in various uh Realms of film and sexuality, but he was a he was a big producer of all male sex films, and he uh, made a film called Job Site, or he produced a film called Job Site, uh, which was directed by the producer of the notorious Bigfoot movie, Night of the Demon. Oh yeah! Uh, hopefully, someone will know listening to this. Uh, but yeah, that guy also made loads and loads of sex films, uh, as in the director. And, uh, Terry told me about job Side, which is itself a remake of a hetero film called chopsticks, uh, that the guy who wrote it and who plays a lawyer in it, and I'm going to pull up his name because I always forget the guy's name. It's, it's one of the more random uh, crossovers from a much earlier period of Hollywood. Robert Arthur. Robert Arthur is best remembered probably for playing Kirk Douglas's sidekick Herbie Cook in Ace in the Hole. <laughs> uh, and in the 80s, he was friends with Terry. And according to Terry, he wrote the screenplay to Site and he also appears in it as a lawyer. So, yeah, there there was a there was always a lot of uh more subtle integration of various fringes of Hollywood. But uh with with all male stuff, I think there was certainly a lot more of a conscious taboo not in terms of the legality, but in terms of how the people involved in the production might have been concerned about public knowledge of their work affecting their other careers.
0: Right. Well, and you know, I realize this is a much, much bigger topic and and, you know, I probably one I'll return to again on the show, but I just thought to even begin to illustrate a bit of that history for listeners, especially since we began the conversation with that discussion of the crossover between those worlds and then how it relates to the queer experience in this way is is sort of a good overview that I would now encourage people to go and do more research and find find this history if they're interested because as you're pointing out, there is so much cross-pollination and integration that goes unremarked upon in, in, the, in the history of, of these cinemas. So uh, thank you for sharing your knowledge on that.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: And, uh, you know, uh, before we head off, uh, I just have to ask, um, you know, you've got the, the Halfway to Black Friday sale coming up soon. Uh, anything else we should have our eyes open, uh, keep our eyes open for, or that you can share with us at current time, or is that the big focus?
1: I think that's really the big focus right now. Uh, we, we do two huge sales every year, uh, our halfway to black Friday sale and our halfway to or our, and our black Friday sale. And both of these are like, you know, the, the, the everything is marked, basically everything is marked down to 50% off SRP. So that's the main focus, but we have two surprise titles that we reveal as the sale goes live. And. Every year, we try to sort of outdo the ones that we had the previous year. And I think this year, we've really done a good job of coming up with two titles that will make a lot of people of diverse tastes very happy. I mean, personally, uh, the stuff that I'm looking forward to the most is probably later in the year, although at least one of the surprise titles is a movie that I absolutely love. I I first saw it at a a screening at the Beverly, New Beverly Cinema in L.A., Uh, some years ago and it was just so great that when we had the opportunity to license like yes we're going to get this doesn't matter what it costs doesn't matter what hoops you have to jump through and we had jumped through some hoops but we got it and i I think that it's going to make a lot of people even those who haven't heard of it if they blind buy it it's like you'll you'll be okay if you blind buy this you're not gonna you're not gonna regret that investment uh yeah later on in the year there's some slashers that i'm really looking forward to uh putting out some movies that have basically been impossible to see looking like anything other than garbage and ultra ultra dark vhs uh transfers scope movies that were never released in anything but pan and scan so hopefully uh everyone will be excited about what we have in the rest, uh, in store for the rest of the year.
0: Well, uh, I'm excited to check it out. And I think that's a pretty good teaser. Uh, listeners, please keep your eyes open and also check out the halfway to black Friday sale. Joe, thank you so much for taking your time to come and talk to us today about you, your work, and you know, all of the things that fuel your passions and your love of cinema. I appreciate it so very much. Happy to do it. I'm Michael Verratti, this is Dead for Filth. Yours always in glam and gore. Good night, good luck, and stay home. Dead for Filth, the Renegade edition, is a June Gloom production in association with Sister Hyde. Dead for Filth is created and hosted by Michael Verratti and produced by Drew Phillips.